Titus 2:11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He begins in verse 11 by saying, For the grace of God has appeared. The reason for living a godly life, as he just explained, is that the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God. God manifested His grace in the gospel. And since He manifested His grace in the gospel, Acts 20.24 calls it the gospel of grace. We speak of the doctrines of grace because it is the gospel of grace, the grace of God. This has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This implies that God's grace is meant to produce an outcome. God's grace is not an ineffectual grace. God's grace is not an impotent grace. God's grace is not a promiscuous grace in the sense that it just is distributed here willy-nilly and it's not going to expect any kind of result. No, it does expect a result. The first thing is, it says that bringing salvation to all men. The effect is to bring salvation to all men. So, this grace produces salvation. If it produces salvation, he will explain that it's also going to instruct us, verse 12, instruct us to deny ungodliness. It produces salvation or brings salvation and also produces godliness. It teaches us about godliness. The two go together. They are hand in hand. Let's see, for example, how these are hand in hand in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The apostle there clearly manifests that living a wicked life is contrary to sound teaching and the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The sound teaching and the glorious gospel are the same thing expressed in different words. So the gospel produces righteousness. The gospel produces godliness. That's what he's talking about as well in Titus 2, 11 and following. He's saying that this grace that produces salvation also produces godliness. This is a chain that cannot be broken. It's an unbroken chain, and it's an, uh, a chain that has a result of good works and fruit. We'll, we will speak more of that in verse 12. But before we go there, verse 11 says all men. 
It says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. In this context, the all men has to do with different kinds of people. Different kinds of people. He just mentioned old men and young, uh, I'm sorry, old men and old women. He mentioned young men, by implication, young women, which also he mentioned explicitly in verse 4. Young women to love husbands and love children. Then slaves and masters, especially the slaves in verses 9 and 10. There is an expectation of a Christian manifestation in, the, in their life, no matter who they are, no matter what their background. This is what he means by, he brings salvation to all men, meaning all types of men. And if we were to take this word in any other sense, it would not suit the context. It would not suit the context, and it also would not suit the context of many other scriptures. Many other scriptures also speak of the gospel being for all sorts of people. Here, a false interpretation would be that this grace of God brings salvation to all men, meaning every individual will receive salvation. That's called universalism. Universalism teaches that salvation will come to every individual, no matter who that individual is. Even for the wicked, some of the most prominent wicked men of history, uh, like Mohammed, or Joseph Smith, or Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, uh, Idi Amin, people like this who have murdered and massacred many people and have promoted false religions and deceived millions and even billions of people, throughout history, that these people will also be saved. They'll go to heaven. But that's not what this passage teaches. And it's not what the scriptures teach. We cannot make this scripture contradict other scriptures that say there is heaven and there is hell. There is eternal life and eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 46, And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There is eternal life and there is eternal punishment. There are two eternal destinies. Another misinterpretation of verse 11 says that the grace of God brings salvation to all men means that God gives an equal amount of grace to every individual after the coming of Christ so that from the coming of Christ until the end of the world, Every person, every individual has an equal amount of grace. That means that he has grace in his heart. And all he needs to do is use his will, his free will, his good will, or whatever residual goodness he has to cooperate with that grace and then be saved from his sins. Not everybody does it, but everybody has an equal opportunity to do it because everybody has equal grace. That's how that argument goes. However, and that kind of grace is not an effective grace. That grace is just a general grace and it's also called prevenient grace. Prevenient meaning it comes beforehand so that every person is well prepared to believe in the gospel. That's what it's known as. Yet, this passage isn't teaching that either. We know that he's talking about specific people 
a redeemed people, because of verse 12. He says, instructing us. Instructing us. In verse 13, the glory of our great God and Savior. Our great God. For 14, who gave himself for us. He might redeem us. And then 14, a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. That means he's talking about a specific group that is the beneficiary, the specific group that receives this grace. As well, we might note chapter 1, verse 1, Titus 1, 1, that Paul wrote, For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. He is very specific. This grace of God to all men means all elect or chosen men, all redeemed men, all believing men. This is the grace that has appeared, bringing salvation to them. It's not offering salvation. You see, the, the, the false view I'm explaining or refuting says that it offers salvation to all men. Right. Not that it brings salvation, but it offers salvation. This passage is not talking about offering salvation. It's talking about bringing that salvation. And what it produces in the ones who receive it, the all men, and what it will produce in their life, instructing us to deny ungodliness. So it brings salvation and sanctification to these people, the all men. Moving forward, in verse 12, God's grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. He heaps up a few synonyms, ungodliness and worldly desires, anything that's contrary to the nature of God. And some have said ungodliness is that which is contrary to the first table of the law, the first four of the Ten Commandments. And worldly desires would be contradicting the second table of the law, which would be commandments uh, five to ten. That is, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal until the Tenth Commandment. That those would be worldly desires, living contrary to that. And instead of following these kinds of ways, that which is ungodly and that which is worldly, the result, the opposite, sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Sensibly. He's emphasized this word to be sensible in chapter 2, verses 1 and following. He's emphasized this word. To have this sense about us that we are able to know, we are able to discern, we know how to distinguish between right and wrong, that which is godly and ungodly. Righteously, we used to live contrary to the law of God, therefore we were wicked and transgressors, we practiced treachery, but now... We are to practice righteousness. We should live in accordance with this law. Godly in the present age. And we were ungodly. We were devilish, in fact. We were sons of the devil. John 8.44 and Ephesians 2.1-3. We were submitted to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's who we were. But now we belong to God. Therefore, there is a change. There must be a change in us. There must be a change in the present age. Right. You see, people will say, oh no, I'm, I'm safe from my sins, everything's fine between me and God. 
And in the present age, between now and the end, I don't need to be different. No, who said that? Why are you, why are you teaching that? I'm not supposed to be different. I can live the way I want until I die. I don't have any expectations in the present age. That's not, I, didn't, I didn't bargain for that. I didn't sign up for that. You're talking about afflictions and suffering. I didn't sign up. I'm not going to do that. No. Paul says in the present age. That is from conversion and until completion, until we see him face to face. Between conversion and completion, there needs to be consecration right. or sanctification or growth or fruit, however we want to describe it, between conversion and completion. There is this intermediate period which Paul calls here the present age. Now, in this lifetime, this is the way we ought to live. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. While we live this way now, we don't live for the world, we live for the world to come. We're looking for the blessed hope. We have hope that we will escape the wrath of God. We have hope that we will not experience pain and suffering and death anymore. We have hope. We have hope that we will be with our Lord who redeemed us on the cross. We have hope that is a blessed hope because we are looking for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. We're looking for Him face to face. The one who saved us from our sins, we're looking to see Him when He returns. He's talking about the return of Christ. We see here that when Christ returns, we will see Him in His glory. We will see Him in His glory. Yes, there was a glory that came from the Father, who He was full of grace and truth, John chapter 1, 14 to 18. That is true. And the disciples beheld Him and saw His glory. There was a glory when He was on the earth, but that glory was nothing compared to the glory in the full state. When we are completely freed from our sin, the glory we will see is immeasurable. It will be infinite and it will be eternal. That's the glory that we have in mind because we know how we used to be and we don't want that anymore. We want to be like Christ. He's our great God and Savior. Great God and Savior. Notice, too, that our great God and Savior, your Bible will probably say, comma, Christ Jesus. When we say great God and Savior, we're talking about one person. We're talking about Christ. The Bible does not know of the Father returning. The Father is not going to return in the clouds. The Father is not the one that we are going to see face to face in the second coming. That's not what the Bible is teaching. Here, it's teaching that Christ is the one. In every passage that speaks of the second coming of Christ, and this is one of them, it's always Christ. It's always Christ. It's not the Holy Spirit, and it's not the Father. It's Christ. And that's what it's teaching here. It's teaching it grammatically, and that's why your English Bibles will say, Our great God and Savior, comma, who are we talking about specifically? Christ Jesus. We're talking about Him. Grammatically in the original language and in the English, we're talking about this one person. This is a passage that is quite evidently speaking of the deity of Christ. The deity or divine nature of Christ. 
anyone with a cultic friend that says Jesus is not divine, he does not have a deity, he does not possess equality with the Father, this verse shows the opposite. In fact, he does have equality with the Father. He's called our great God and Savior. Verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us for, from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He gave himself for us. He gave himself for us means that he died for us. Why did Jesus die on the cross? That is a very important question that everybody must answer. We do know in his historical reality, he was a historical figure, a historical person. Even liberals today, liberal theologians today have to acknowledge that. They used to deny that. There was a period in scholarship when liberals denied the historicity of Christ. Now they don't deny that anymore. There's been enough evidence presented that they cannot deny that anymore. We know he lived historically. They even believe that he died. But they didn't never believe that he rose from the dead. But here we know he did die and he did rise from the dead. He gave himself for us. In fact, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is related to our own redemption. Amen. He died for us so that we would not die forever. That's, that's what is, is explained in Romans 6. Romans 6 is an expansive explanation of our passage here in Titus. Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Right. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self... Or, or, or old man, was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So far, you are not under law, but under grace. This phrase is bandied about as an excuse to sin. But so far, as you've read, it doesn't, it doesn't imply that, right? But let's make it more clear. Or let's let the apostle make it more clear. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? 
May it never be. He answered it right there. Do you not know? What happened to you that you don't know? What Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He makes it absolutely clear that God's grace should produce life and righteousness, and not death and wickedness. That's what he's teaching as well. In Titus chapter 2, he gave himself for us for the very purpose of transforming us. He didn't give himself for us and pay the penalty for our sin that we might continue in sin, but that we might reject sin. And Titus 2.14 says that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, from every lawless deed, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He redeemed us from every lawless deed, purified us to produce good deeds and to be zealous for good deeds. Just as we were headstrong and we jumped headlong into our sin, yeah. now we are supposed to be zealous in the opposite direction. Amen. No, not as fanatics. Not, not as fanatics. Not, not, not the way the world calls us. Not like that. No, no, no. That's not what we are. We love the Lord. We have great zeal, enthusiasm, joy, hope. We know that we believe in the truth and we're going to adhere to this truth no matter what people say. That's the way we're supposed to be zealous for good deeds. Because now also we belong to Him, a people for His own possession. If If we belong to Christ, and Romans 6 did say, we are united with Christ. If we are united with Christ, how is it that God who is holy and Christ who is holy and sinless, if we are united to Him, how could it be that God could tolerate a wicked person right. attached to Him? No. A wicked person attached to His holiness? No, it's impossible. Right. So no one who professes to know God in Christ and practices wickedness and justifies that wickedness, does, he doesn't belong to Christ. He's not a people for Christ, for Christ's own possession. In fact, Christ will disown him. He will say on that day, Lord, Lord, many will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy in your name and in your na- name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. They practice lawlessness. They never knew Christ. And he'll say, go away from me. I have nothing to do with you. 
Matthew seven twenty one to twenty three. These, are, these words and these truths are so important. Verse 15 says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Obviously, Titus is not able to twist everybody's arm. When he says, let no one disregard you, what he means by this is, stand up and say what needs to be said, preach what needs to be preached, and if somebody disregards you, then it's, it's up to them. It's on their head. It's on their head when he says, let no one disregard you. And in the church, don't let anything else creep into the church. Don't let any false doctrine creep into the church because if they disregard you and you allow them, then they're going to creep in, they're going to sneak in, they're going to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. That's what they will do. So don't let those things happen. Instead, speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. The authority is here, not because Titus is uniquely uh, chosen or special, and Titus is different from all others. Titus is in this position because he's appointed by the apostle to be in that, that position, and the apostle was appointed by Christ to be in the apostolic position. So these are callings from a higher authority. But once we are in that position of a higher authority, because of our calling, then we should speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. Because we have God's authority. We are saying, thus says the Lord. We're saying, it is written. We're saying, the sacred writings say. We're saying, the scripture says. The Bible says. The word of God says. This is what the gospel teaches. When we use those words, we're saying, it's right here. It's the Bible. The holy Word of God from heaven to us to guide us and show us how to live. The authority of the Bible above all else. Above all authors, above all preachers, above, above all individuals, everyone must submit to the Bible. If we don't submit to the Bible, then we are sinning against God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Question, brother.